Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Welcome to another Daily Tech News Show special edition. I'm Tom Merritt. And uh, joining me today, I'm very happy to be talking with Josh Leposky, professor of geography at Memorial University. Josh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Not at all. Thank you, Tom. We are going to talk about e-waste. Uh, and before we get into what it is and the background of it, how, how did you get into studying this? Uh, yeah, I've been interested in high-tech, digital tech uh, for, for a really long time, ever really since my undergrad. Um, and actually, it all started when uh, someone handed me uh, William Gibson's famous novel, Neuromancer, uh, back in the uh, you know early '90s, and um, I guess it's one of those instances where uh, you know I can really say you know a book changed my life. I was just for whatever reason fascinated by the world that was being described in that book and starting to see bits and pieces of it you know kind of emerge around me as the internet was becoming more mainstream and. Uh, you know, people were getting these this crazy thing called email and and all of that. And um, from from that kind of very early interest, um, I, you know, I was uh, interested in the kind of environmental scenes that were in that book, and starting to think about well, um, you know, the novel is describing a world that in some ways looks a little dark, uh, is that where we're headed? And, uh, that turned into a whole variety of projects, uh, including, uh, much later on, uh, field work, uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, and then, uh, for my PhD and then later on, uh, post PhD into, uh, the specific topic of, uh, waste from electronics. How does geography fit into the study of e-waste? Yeah, it's crucial. Um, I mean, in some of the ways are, are quite basic. I mean, um, like so many economic activities, um, you know, there there's a different cost to do uh, business in different places. And depending on what the specific business uh, in mind is, uh, you know, th- that, those costs are going to be different. Um, <clears throat> geography plays a, a critical role in terms of uh, for example, uh, just something as basic as the cost of transportation of getting stuff, in this case, um, uh, you know, scrap electronics 
from where they're collected to where they're going to be processed. And um, that has uh, might sound, you know, sort of like a simple proposition on the on the surface, but uh, actually processing uh, scrap from electronics and all of the materials involved in that uh, requires, you know, or can require very specialized industrial equipment and that equipment doesn't exist everywhere. Um, and, uh, it has, so it has to go to certain places, uh, for that processing. So, um, that, that's sort of the, the basic sense in which geography really matters. In the in the wide scope of human history, uh, e-waste is is relatively new. Uh, in fact, waste management itself, uh, when you think about it, is kind of new. We just used to throw mm-hmm. stuff in the river, right, or, or right. outside the town. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Give us a little sense of of when e-waste started to become a thing that had to be dealt with on its own, and 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 how we've got to where we are now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, so it's an interesting history. So the, some of the earliest references I've been able to find go back to the early seventies, actually, but in in ways that are quite different than how uh, we currently think about uh, e-waste. So uh, in the early 70s, the, the U.S. Bureau of Mines was actually actively exploring scrap electronics as sources of precious and semi-precious metals. But at that point, um, the concern was really about sort of growing resource scarcity um, as opposed to, say, a waste management problem or, you know, um, sort of allied concerns around what comes along with uh, waste or e-waste specifically, like uh, uh, toxicity or, or mm-hmm. pollution. So the issues were, were quite different, even though the, the specific sources that they were looking at uh, were similar or the same. You jump forward, really, to... Um, the very late 90s, uh, you start seeing a few reports coming out of uh, Europe uh, as they were starting to um, have some concerns about more and more of post-consumer uh, electronics entering the, the municipal solid waste stream and sort of pre- presenting um, you know, new challenges for that existing infrastructure. Uh, some early then um, business journalism in uh, in and around uh, 2000, when uh, brand manufacturers were start, meaning brands like HP and, and whatnot, were were starting to see uh, or understand that that they had a particular issue around dealing with end of life electronics. And at that point, the conversation really was much different than that history from the early 70s. Now the conversation was, look. Uh, this is uh, potentially an issue because there's, uh, depending on how things are processed, materials can release a lot of uh, toxicants. Uh, so we need to manage this uh, material in a responsible way. And then I think really there was a watershed moment with uh, a report that came from an environmental NGO, the Basel Action Network, uh, in 2002, um, which called Exporting Harm. And uh, that report um, detailed through uh, some interviews and photography and whatnot, um, the net, what is now kind of the classic image of um, e-waste that has labels on it indicating, uh, or brand marks indicating that it came from uh, wealthier markets, you know, US, Canada, uh, Western Europe, mm-hmm. and ending up in the so-called developing world. Um, initially in in China, but then some of their uh, their work showing elsewhere as well. At that point, 
e-waste becomes a kind of, it becomes more than just a story about proper waste management. It really, and this is one of the reasons I'm so interested in it, is that these technologies and the wastes that arise from it really start to become, you know, almost allegorical stories, you know, ways of telling much, much broader stories about, um, you know, on the one hand, sort of technological progress, and on the other hand, uh, and, and the sort of utopic images that go through that, and then on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the other hand, sort of much more dystopic, um, uh, real, almost end of the world type stories. Um, and, and somehow, well, not somehow, I mean, electronics comes to stand in as the sort of the technology of the moment mm -hmm. to, to uh, narrate those stories. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the, the visions of the mountains of, of, you know, dead circuit boards and all of that uh, sort of looming over us for sure. Uh, yeah. That, tells the story of itself. That's right. I mean, just very quickly to make a, a, a quick historical point about that. It, a lot of that discourse around e-waste today has some really interesting similarities to the, the same kinds of stories that were being told through scrap automobiles mm -hmm. in the early 20th century in the U.S., and then right through into the 1970s, where it was the car and it's the sort of the scrap heap was was sort of a stand in for, you know, the the dark side of, right. of progress in the U.S. So, yeah. yeah, I wonder why we're not seeing more movies with shady characters meeting in electronic scrapyards. It seems, it seems <laughs> like that would make sense. Right, right, right. Well, funny you should mention that there is actually a, um, a James Bond novel. Mm relatively recent uh i forget the name of it but uh where the villain is in fact an electronic scrap uh recycler and he's you know the equivalent of specter whatever making his money from getting the the data from uh harvesting the data from scrapped electronics so oh, wow yeah well, mr bond i expect you to just toss it over there in that heap that's right. <laughs> exactly. Well, so, I, you know, I'm sure there are people out there in the audience who have secretly thrown a wire or two or maybe even a whole device in the trash and hoped that no one would find out. Uh, there are plenty of people I know responsibly take uh, their devices to a recycling center or drop-off point at an electronic store, uh, something like that. Uh, that's what we know from, you know, the day-to-day. -day. And how is e-waste generally being handled around the world now? Yeah, so generally it's handled as, as you say, as a post-consumer um, waste stream. Um, we can get into why that's important if you want, um, at a, you know, a little later on. But, um, you know, if I had to talk about sort of two broad general patterns, um, it, you know, these materials are either, they're entering uh, municipal solid waste uh, systems, uh, waste management systems that are, um, either, uh, you know, sort of formalized, uh, curbside kind of pickup situations, in which case they may, depending on the specific location we're talking about would be, you know, those materials would then either go to landfill if that's permitted, or they would be, uh, routed into a recycling, uh, uh you know, a recycling system. Um, the if they move into a recycling system, um, you know, they're not going into landfill, but they, they then, they then enter a, you know, a highly industrialized, um, you know, sort of big industry sort of process where the, 
the basic um, a sort of uh, way things happen is that whole devices are shredded, destroyed, broken down into their um, uh, mat uh, constituent materials. Broadly speaking, that's going to be metals, plastics, and glass, or glasses, plural. Um, and then those materials go through um, a, uh, a set of sorting processes to try and get them into as pure a fraction of the material as possible. So, for example, separating <clears throat> the uh, ferrous from non-ferrous materials, so separating, say, uh, copper and aluminum from iron and steel, mm -hmm. um, trying to separate the different plastics, which is extremely challenging, uh, as well as separating the glasses. And then <clears throat> um, once that separation and, uh, well, yeah, the separation process is complete, or it is considered complete when the company handling that material can then sell it back on to uh, basically the world market for commodities. So um, in many ways, big industrial recycling companies are they're very similar to mining companies in a lot of ways um, because they are, they are often selling their material um, back into the same markets that you know, buyers for whatever manufacturing sector, electronics, automobiles, what have you, are sourcing uh, metals, plastics, and glasses. Does that include the rare earths that are often a, a topic of, of controversy? Mm. That's very diff That's harder to say. Rare. Uh -huh. So, um, rare earths are actually very common, despite their name. But exactly. one of the thing, yeah, uh, one of the things that makes them tricky is that they are um very diffusely distributed around the planet so um it's not that they're hard to find it's that finding them in in significant enough concentrations is is tricky um and and once those materials are in things like electronics depending on the specific rare earth material you're talking about they are more or less easy to recover. And right now, re recovery of rare earths is still technically, re sorry, recovery of rare earths in a recycling process um, is still technically quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's not being done, but it's, um, it's much, much, much harder to do than other common materials like uh, uh, copper or, or aluminum, steel, that kind of thing. Got it. Now, yeah. if, if, I, if I throw my phone which no one should do but if i throw my old phone into the just the trash bin is there yes. any, is there usually a process to recover that or does that mean it's just going to end up right in the landfill and not get recycled yeah um again it depends where specifically you're doing that even mm -hmm. even within the u.s there will be differences from city to city um because you know once this is part of the issue with handling really any waste material but but certainly e-waste is once you're dealing with um kind of uh, curbside pickup. There's so many differences between the systems from city and city that uh, city to city that it, it can depend a lot. Most or many cities, as part of curbside pickup, will send material through what's called a materials re um, recovery facility, an uh, uh, MRF or a MRF, as they say in the industry. And again, depending on the system, there may be processes at those facilities to separate out electronics from other municipal solid waste, but not always. Mm -hmm. 
and and that process will be you know more or less automated um despite you know what we might think about you know the the uh promise of things like artificial intelligence and automation and all of this um something as seemingly simple as sorting materials for recycling is actually uh even though the work tends to be very low paid is actually highly skilled um and just so just to give you a an example of that um some recycling facilities are trying to who are that are trying to automate uh sorting of plastics they will do what's called optical sorting which involves using lasers uh that basically you know as material goes by on a conveyor belt you're shining a laser on it and the the computer reads uh you know the reflectivity of the material going by mm. and different different plastics have different reflectivities and so it allows some automated sorting except when it comes to black plastics which because of their color um they they can mess up the the um they can make it difficult to reflect back hmm. uh, and make it difficult to sort by an, that automated process one of the consequences of that is that black plastics which are very common in electronics and many other goods as well they have even their color is similar to the eye but they have very different underlying chemistries or mm-hmm. can have very different underlying chemistries and what that messing up of the optical sorting means often is that black plastics that are used in electronics that have flame toxic flame retardants in them end up getting mingled with other black plastics that were originally used in things like food packaging mm-hmm. or you know um uh well uh, uh cutlery that kind of thing and so you have the mingling together then of, of plastic streams that then you and I get back <laughs> as recycled uh recycled goods that you know we may or may not want to be eating or having our food packaged with them yeah i don't want my soda no underglass <laughs> soda but i don't want any can of anything or bottle to to have uh flame retardant uh like right. plastic in it yeah Right. Uh, so I, I know that probably a question a, a lot of people have in the audience would be, uh, is it still the case that most of the developed countries are pushing out their waste to developing countries to have that recycling done? Or is that shifted now? Yeah, it's shifting quite a lot. It, it was. It's really actually a question, the extent to which that was ever really the case. So um what what my research and some uh, uh, research from other folks is showing is that the really the largest um, or the biggest reason for export in the past has been well and to today is for the the market for the reuse of devices that um, get discarded in richer markets okay. um, discarded not not because they're necessarily broken. Um, they might be, but, uh, they're, they're discarded and people in richer markets are able to afford a new device. So they go out and get it. Meanwhile, um, uh, people, importers, uh, overseas, uh, see, uh, you know, a a huge opportunity to bring in, uh, quite very cheap devices, uh, then for repair and reuse. Um, 
it's not that none of the export that was going on was for export for um, materials recovery or recycling. Um, but uh, yeah, even those early images are, uh, that are sort of framed as e-waste dumping, what has yet to really ever be uh, sufficiently explained is um, the, the real cost difference to ship Mm. Um, waste from, say, the U.S. to then just put it straight in a dump overseas, and uh, when it when it's typically cheaper to just send it to landfill uh, in the U.S. So, it it you know the person who pays the shipping cost in these cases is the is the overseas buyer. So the equivalent here would be, you know, why would you go uh, go online to Amazon and buy a book and then it the book arrive you, you pay for the shipping and then you put it in the garbage right it, it the economics just don't really make sense um the other big issue that is only now sort of being um recognized is just how much of that equipment that was appearing in some of those early reports was also coming from domestic sources overseas mm-hmm. you know we might have these sort of cartoonish images of the so-called developing world or third world as if computers are, you know, these kind some kind of imported magic that they've never seen before, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 these images still persist. And yet, of course, you know, of course there are, you know, there's a, there are banking sectors and, you know, medical industries and all of the, you know, post-secondary institutions that have been using, uh, high tech for decades and decades. Um, television, radio have been, um, you know, in place in in these countries for for uh, twenty, thirty years, if not longer. Uh- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe tap-to-pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, 
Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Um, so your question is, is that still happening? The, the picture has now, it is changing um, uh, in part, You've probably come uh, heard this as um, you know China brought in a variety of trade bans for what China calls foreign garbage, but prior to mm, say a year or a year and a half ago was uh, you know uh, what the industry calls scrap. That gets complicated in that those trade bans from China have been for materials that aren't they don't encompass the sort of full gamut of electronic waste. And there's been no explicit um, ban from uh, China or other countries recently, specifically about electronic waste. They have banned particular kinds of plastics, some of which are relevant to electronics. Um, but uh, um, it, 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 can then depend on, you know, is is the material coming as whole devices versus shredded material and whatnot. So the landscape is the landscape of recycling materials, recovery around electronics. It is changing, and it's it's changing very quickly recently. Uh, but it it's also quite a complicated landscape. It seems, though, and this may be oversimplifying it uh, a bit, but it it seems that uh, the main driving factor is is being able to sell the recover whatever materials you can recover from it back into the marketplace. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when it comes to when it comes to the recycling market, yes, I think you know it it's helpful to think of recycling as a materials recovery market, and in that sense, it's quite similar to. Um, you know, tr- traditional mining. Um, it's about getting materials that can, de- uh, you know, mm. be sold into a manufacturing process. Um, but uh, as I say, there's sort of two broad streams there's, uh, of, that relate to exports from richer markets. One stream is the material recoveries market, which is um, uh, uh, in terms of value, le- much sort of less an issue than the reuse stream, uh, which has historically been much more valuable in terms of, yeah. as I say, getting cheap or, or free discarded devices in richer markets, bringing them to um, uh, poorer markets overseas and, and selling them into the reuse uh reuse market that that would seem to be when you when you trade in your phone right is that often mm. the source of of those kinds of devices um there is some of that uh that that's difficult to track mm. uh in in that um so in the trade-in um industry or or yeah i guess industry is the way to describe it you know, a lot of those companies, say T-Mobile or Verizon, what have you, um, you know, they have contractual agreements with the brand manufacturers of the phones, uh, say Samsung or, or Apple or, or uh, Huawei, etc. And and those brand manufacturers um, uh, are working quite hard to recover the value of those phones as phones in the used market and that can be those used markets are some of that is is overseas but a lot of it is also domestic uh to the u.s or canada or or uh western europe as well so that that's a 
what you're talking there about the the trade-in market is quite different than say what happens to your phone if it goes into the curbside collection Got system. It. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. is a lot of the materials recovery done domestically in countries versus being exported? Um, in the U.S., uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of, I mean, a, a sort of basic, what I guess I would call kind of pre-processing um, is is done. Um, and what that really is, is just shredding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of that um, sorting into uh, different uh, different fractions, uh, material fractions, as, as the industry would say. Again, the metals, the plastics, the glasses. Uh, some of that is done um, uh, domestically in the U.S. or Canada or or in Europe. Uh, but uh, a lot of the uh, final processing prior to uh, getting uh, sold into um, you know the manufacturing markets um, is is also done overseas. I mean, it's. Certainly, some of that is is done in in China, but that is also where things are, uh, you know, manufactured yeah, as I mean, new. It makes devices. sense to yeah. recover the materials close to where the materials might be needed, and that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's more we can get into uh, on that front if, if you like. I mean, I just very quickly can say that historically it, it wasn't always the case. There was quite a bit of recycling infrastructure in the United States, but um, you know, over time, kind of along with the globalization of manufacturing, so too the globalization of of uh, recycling and the infrastructure that goes with it. Uh, and so a, good portions of the recycling infrastructure in the U.S. also moved overseas. Uh, and sort of interestingly, with the current uh, bans that China has uh, imposed on uh, receiving what they are calling foreign garbage. One of the ways that Chinese firms that had been processing that material are, I, you know, I'll say getting around it, but I don't mean anything nefarious. Mm-hmm. They're starting to buy up U.S. recycling infrastructure uh, and and moving their operations, as it were, or parts of them back to the U.S. In sort of, it's sort of analogous to what happened, you know, in the in the late '70s and '80s with the U.S. Um, car industry, where, you know, uh, in order to get around trade tariffs, Honda, Toyota, and whatnot started building manufacturing plants in the United States. It's mm-hmm. it's similar to that. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Before we do wrap up here, uh, I, I want to ask. I know we've touched on a lot of the implications that this has on on us as consumers. What mm-hmm. are what are some of the other things that that e waste handling, the way it impacts us, uh, that maybe we don't think about or don't see? Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest issue uh, in terms for 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 us as consumers or, or citizens is just is how the framing of e-waste as strictly a post-consumer issue um, is actually part of the problem mm-hmm. because left out of the the conversation then, deliberately or not, is all of the waste that occurs even before you and I buy our devices in manufacturing. And the, the pollution and waste arising in electronics manufacturing far exceeds, you know, uh, post, what what arises as post-consumer e-waste when it reaches, say, a municipal solid waste system. And um, 
you know, that's a problem in all sorts of ways, in part that all of the concern around e-waste, whether it's to be regulated in this way or that way, focuses on the end of the pipe and doesn't do anything really to change what's coming down the pipe in the first place. Mm-hmm. And um, so in a way, I think, it, yeah, it's how e-waste has been framed is, is one of the most important implications of, um, of it as uh, a waste problem in, it, in its sort of the current concern around it. I think we really need to sort of turn the camera around, as it were, uh, and look upstream and, and be thinking hard about ways to change the chemical makeup of the products that are uh, coming down, down the pipe uh, that we will eventually buy. So not just the the waste that is made in the manufacturer, although it sounds like that's a part of it, but also mm-hmm. making products that contribute less waste at the end of their life. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I mean that that covers uh, less waste at end of life covers you know a, a, um, a range of options there. You know, longer durability, more repairability. Mm-hmm. Um, even just easier to recycle. You know, one of the issues is that uh, contemporary, you know, contemporary electronics are materially very complicated or very complex, and you know that uh, industrial materials recovery process I described—the shredding and the sorting—the more chemically complex a device is, the harder and harder that materials uh, management is at end of life. Um, so there's that aspect of things. There's also sort of a, you know, a, I guess I would call it a a kind of an environmental justice, um, uh, issue here in that the, you know, the people dealing with these devices at end of life, even when they're in proper, as it were, proper facilities in the U S and Canada, even with all the safety precautions that are taken, they're still, and there's good research backing this up, they're still exposed to toxicant levels that are problematic. And that, you know, recycling will never change that. Recycling is about dealing with waste after it exists. That means it's already got a chemical makeup right. uh, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so we need, to, we need to change how things are made before they become waste in the first place. And, and I, I know this is an oversimplification, but it does feel like the more repairable a phone or a computer is, the easier it would be to recover materials from it. Yeah, I think that's possible. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, again, it, it depends on um, on a variety of factors. Yeah. Uh, but yes, generally speaking, I think if if something is simple to, to repair, it probably is also um, simple or simpler to recycle. Right. Not that there aren't other yeah. issues as far as the materials used in the boards and, and things like that, too. Yeah, that that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, Professor Leposky, uh, thank you so much uh, for chatting with us today. Uh, I know there's there's way more uh, that, that that there is to this topic, obviously, uh, than we could cover in a half hour. Uh, if folks want to find out more about this topic, about the work that you do, where should they go? Um, well, they can follow me on on Twitter at uh, rubbishmaker. Um, uh, they can uh, go to the uh, website. Um, uh, uh, electronicplanet.xyz. Excellent, excellent. That's a Z for you Americans. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> no my Canadian roots. <laughs> uh, Josh, thank you so much for talking with us again. Really appreciate it.
Not at all. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. If you want to keep these kinds of interviews and Daily Tech News Show coming, of course, you'll want to support us at patreon.com slash DTNS. That is where we get most of the funding we use to make the show happen. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.